0: Hey everyone, I'm Bruce, and you're listening to another episode of Clearly Unfiltered. Clearly Unfiltered is a short-form podcast that offers clear, concise, unfiltered, and undoubtedly flawed thoughts on how and why I'm butchering some of my own sacred cows. In each episode, I'm gonna let those steaks sizzle and serve them up at medium rare or blue, and now and again well done or charred. In part one of Supremacy. Ayanda Zaka and I reflected on the power of friendship, supremacy in the context of race, and the false narratives that support supremacy. Ayanda also shared vulnerably about some of his own experiences and challenged the presumption that based on skin color, some people hold more value than others. So let's pick up our conversation
1: where we left off. We still live with this idea that one person is automatically assumed to be better, more knowledgeable, superior, and another, by virtue of their skin colour, is assumed to have negative mm. qualities or cannot attain a particular level.
0: I know, I'm not sure if it's like this globally because I don't know. But one thing I notice, particularly in the city in which we live here in South Africa, is despite the years that we've had in this country of apartheid, um, you know, not being a reality anymore and having a government that's more representative of the people, and despite affirmative action there's still a sense in many businesses churches corporate spaces uh, schools you know that 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 leadership often seems to be very heavily sort of white and and i think some of the problem i have with that is is i think there's this particular narrative that suits people that's perpetuated in those spaces and often that's done in a a way that narrative is perpetuated in a way that's i think subconscious it's this this unconscious bias that people have that their narrative is correct um but it's what the point i'm getting to here is so often i hear leaders who are white and most probably white and male standing up in spaces saying some very problematic things but a not understanding that that stuff is problematic, and b when confronted about the problematic nature of what they're saying, often don't acknowledge the negative impact that it has um, on on other people I'll give you an example, um, and I'm going to be general here because I don't want to point on specific fingers, but um, I was listening to a specific sermon this last week, and i I was blown away by even the use of language that this white male pastor was using and i know that there are black folk and folk of color in his congregation and and having had conversations with you about how things are perceived i know there were people in would have been people in that congregation who would have been like wow that's offensive well how dare you say that Uh, and i yeah, I wrestle with that, I wrestle with, you know, how do we break down that situation where people who are in a position of power, who are in a position of supremacy starts acknowledging and 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 working on what they need to work on. Maybe it comes back to what you were saying earlier about humility, like maybe that's the core of it, is being able to step back and and unpack where we are at, and maybe step back from certain spaces, I don't know, but that's what frustrates me, it feels like the people who are in power are not acknowledging, they don't even see that every other elder in the church is also white or every other person on the board is is white or, or, or whatever it is. You know, There's a perception in South Africa that BEE makes it very hard for or affirmative action makes it very hard for white males. I was in a talk the other day where there's a staggering percentage of people in positions in power in industry in South Africa are still white males. So this perception that, as a white male, I don't have opportunities is like actually a load of bull. Mm. And and so, I'm saying a lot <laughs> here, but I'm trying to put words to my frustration, Ayanda, yeah. because how do we get to that point where people who are, in your opinion, I mean, you work with mm. organizations, how, how do we help people unpack their supremacy and get to a place where they understand that they need to be more careful about the language they use, where they need to understand that they need to listen more? Um, because I think when we can get to that, we can remove this polarized conversation and 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 start getting onto
1: the same page so I think it's a it's It's a major challenge in the sense that if if anybody's going to be dealing with their own sort of superiority, it'll probably feel i assume like an extremely high price to pay. Because it's so integrated into into their belief system, it's it's almost like undermining everything that defines you. Um, so, to for one to get to that place of of dealing with that, there must be either a major event or I don't know how necessarily people come to that point by and and, and through themselves without. Um, without an external factor. It's almost like this, um, I might be fluffing my science a bit now, but the theory of, uh, of um, inertia is, is, is it inertia momentum? I can't remember. But oh, yeah. an object will keep, in a vacuum anyway, an object will keep moving in the same direction at a constant speed unless acted on by an external force. So, If you, as a person who thinks of themselves and believes themselves to be superior in that way, and you have the benefit of being like that in the world, of being assumed to be right, being assumed to be innocent, being assumed to be intelligent and experienced, even though sometimes in cases you're not, or qualified, or whatever the case is, purely by your skin color, to step away from that is going to feel like a a massive price to pay. And I think that's a challenge uh, from my opinion, in what I observe, that white men in particular have in South Africa and probably in the world even, is because they've enjoyed this privilege of being assumed with these attributes that moving away from that feels very, very difficult and painful and may even be an undermining of the core beliefs of identity of that person because you don't know how to be anything but that. Mm. So... I don't know how one arrives at that at that place by themselves, um, and you know to, to be willing to undergo what may feel like a painful process, because I think when we wanting to when you talk about issues of equality as an example and. Let's say now you, you cite BE and affirmative action is an example. I know that there's a lot of kickback and resistance against that and there's there is this prevailing view that if you're white, particularly if you're a white male, that now it's reverse racism and the opportunities to to have um to be in, in jobs is compromised. But if you look at the stats and you look at like you cite um you know who who sits in boardrooms who are the decision makers who are the ceos and the board members who if you look at at least in the last list that i saw a few years ago um the top 100 richest south africans uh purchase who i think is the first or second um richest man in africa only comes in at like number 26 at least according to that last list so the top hundred of the top hundred the majority, to the large part, are still white. And I'm not necessarily saying that let's go and make it black. But the argument of saying that if you're white, that you're struggling to not get jobs, um, that, that is incorrect. Look at the stats. Um, if you're a black youth in this country, you're uh, in, what, 40 to 50 percent uh, chance of being unemployed. Whereas if you're white, you are probably in the less than 10 percent. So the chances of being employed if you're white actually still, till today, with BE and affirmative action and all the legislation still in your favor. Mm. And I would argue or ask people if they struggle with this thought, one question that, that, that may be helpful for them to ask themselves is, if they were given a choice today, to, <laughs> I know it's impossible, but to change your skin color, what would you choose? Because if you cannot say... If 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 you are white and you you if you at least engage with that question honestly with yourself, I doubt that you'd want to you'd want to choose black or Indian or coloured. You probably would choose white, mm. and that should tell you something about how honest you, you are being with yourself around that question. Yo,
0: just going to let that thought sit a little. <laughs> Oh, that's powerful. You know, Ayanda, as you were talking, uh, I realized something as well. And that is the two of us in this conversation are both male. Sure. And I know as I've engaged with with women, particularly women who have leadership positions in, for example, schools, which was the space that I came from, the number of times I would sit in meetings and women would be spoken over or who they're, they're you know there's that whole thing of of a woman will say it in a meeting and then a man will reframe it and say it louder and everyone will applaud the man for having a great idea and yet the idea came from a woman around the table and so i think even as we're having this conversation we you know we need to acknowledge our own privilege in the sense of being men and and so often in in, in that kind of setting our voices are Often the loudest or the most listened to. And for me as a white man, probably historically uh, more, more than you. Uh, there's an interesting question for me that comes from this, and this isn't one that we prepared for, so I'm going to throw it at you. But the one thing that I have wrestled with a lot is you know, there's, and it comes from what you said about people feeling threatened, is I feel often people who are in a position of superiority or power or supremacy. The minute that is challenged, they so easily step into the victim mode, like we're being attacked. Um, and, and I, I often challenge people with this thought of, "We're we're not canceling you. We're holding you accountable." Mm. And it feels to me like people in power, or people who have ha- always had that sense of power, really struggle with being held accountable. Mm. So they will there will be a racial slur and they'll be called out for it. Mm. And there will be all sorts of excuses and all sorts of apologies and almost a reticence to be held accountable. Like my apology should be enough for the way I treated you. And stop canceling me. You want to ruin my life. And I, I think most people are actually just saying, No. We want you to be held accountable. As in your position as someone who has Grown up, marginalised, and and has has been at the receiving end of some of this stuff. You know, well, what is your sense of this whole conversation around canceling or accountability? Mm-hmm. Because I think, you know, I think there would be such a different response if someone were to say, "Yes, hold me accountable. I'm willing to do the work. I'm willing to learn. I was in the wrong. I said something that was problematic. I'm willing to listen and engage. Maybe step away for a while. Whatever it is." Mm-hmm. Um, but what's your perception of that dynamic? You
1: know, it reminds me of um, a very difficult um, experience I had with a former manager of mine. Where it was in a very small office, and in the times and I engaged with this manager, it pains me to say these descriptions, but it was a white Afrikaans male in this particular office, and... Um, we used to have chats because, uh, in his words, he used to consider me as part of the management team. Um, and as I said, it was a very small office, so it's probably at its height, about 20 people max, but normally 10 or so people. And we used to talk, of course, about um, other colleagues and how they're doing, et cetera, et cetera, because as I understood it, these were management discussions. To find out at some point that um, I was also being spoken about to other colleagues who were not considered management. so. I felt that that wasn't um, integrous of him to do. And so I brought it up to him at one point, one-on-one in a closed environment, and he just couldn't handle it. He absolutely got very, very angry with me for questioning his integrity. Um, And it went to the MD of the company, Uh, got a phone call from him, and essentially what I was accused of was, was of violating this man's dignity. And I was asked to apologize or then subject myself to a formal disciplinary process. Now, I felt stuck because, number one, I am not the MD. I am not the manager. I do not have the length of relationship or the friendship to back me. And in fact, I do not trust the system, to be fair because already by that point was there was unfairness for me in that whole process by having the MD speak to me. It should have been the manager who should have spoken to me directly as I, um, what I think, paid him the due respect mm-hmm. to speak with him directly, one-on-one, and, one, and not speak behind his back or whatever the case may be. I'd The sentiment that I was left with was that because he was challenged by what I think he perceives as a person inferior to him. Of course, positionally, yes, I was. But in terms of, um, I, let's say, I, I, I had no other way to perceive it other than the fact that it was racially motivated. He could not handle being challenged in his superior position, positionally, but also belief mentally, et cetera, by someone he perceived to be inferior. And therefore, it automatically, was um, a challenge against his his dignity, which was not. It was just about his integrity. But if he assumed himself to be integrist and there was never a question in his mind that he could be wrong on that, then of course he would kick back like that. Um, and that's why he ran to call it a friend <laughs> who would back him on that, and that person unfortunately did without going through due process. Um, so maybe I think to answer a question about why I think these things... I think are perpetuated is because it's difficult for white people to to hold themselves accountable to somebody who doesn't look like them mm. because the the they don't perceive whether it's value or superiority or equalness should i say to someone who does not have the same skin color or does not share their gender mm. i think for the large part and i speak very broadly of course since um uh, is that it is difficult for white males to to hold themselves accountable, and I'm sure there will be people who hear this and kick back against it. But I'm talking about hold themselves accountable to people who are not like them, who are not male and white like them, because on that they assume equalness. But if it's anybody who's not sharing the gender or the skin color, then it's a it's 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 like the brain short circuits a bit, and they they cannot they cannot perceive being in a role other than that of power and position.
0: You know, as you are sharing that story, it has reminded me of so many stories that I've heard recently of people in similar positions. And it's almost, you know, when I listened to you, I thought, in this situation that Ayanda was in, there was one story that was automatically believed, and there was one side of the story that was automatically assumed to be incorrect. And so... I would add, because of who told it. Exactly. Because of who told the story and because of who had access to tell the story in a certain way. And because of that relationship and connection to power, there's an automatic
1: belief of the one version of the story. And interestingly on that, my version of the story was never asked.
0: Yeah, so there wasn't even another side of the story. The assumption was that that is the story. Yes, (laughs) And so... Jeez, I know. <laughs> Like, I think, you know, you can I, I don't want to end this conversation on a on a on a downer, because I think certainly in the conversations we've always had, and you know, we could speak about a lot of things, but I, I want to try to wrap this up by focusing on what is it that we can do in terms of supremacy in your mind of of dismantling that both i think there are two levels here for me there's an individual level there's me as bruce working through my own privilege and how i take up space in the world but then i think there's also there's systemic issues that i think all of us are called to challenge and maybe those who have access so-called access to power maybe we need to be speaking louder um, and standing up to that more, have the courage to do that. But, but in your mind, how do we start deconstructing this, this supremacy? Is it through a relationship like ours? You know what is it?
1: You know, if I if I were to somehow give everybody a pill or a drink, <laughs> put it into the water system, <laughs> I would do that. <laughs> Probably not a good thing, but I would do that. Maybe let me put this as an as an appeal um, mm. to, you know, whoever's listening out there who might be um, thinking about this. A lot of people like to travel, uh, whether it's outside your country or different provinces or whatever the case is. And so this is a part for me that doesn't make sense, if I could put it as bluntly as saying about the majority of white people that I know. You love to travel. You love to be in different scenery, explore different cultures, be sometimes in countries with languages that you don't understand. So, and maybe point a finger, particularly in South Africa, and I would argue that this would be similar in other places. So within us is this natural curiosity to experience things that are different to where we are at that's why I'll spend thousands of rands and leave our homes and our beds to go sleep in a stranger's home in a bed to experience something that's different and be in a different space. And that's refreshing to us. And I often wonder to myself, there's difference all around us, whether it's a, a different uh, pers- a person with a different upbringing or even just how you, you mentioned gender, for example. Um, my wife experience of even people like myself, Zulu, Zulus in South Africa, a tribe, one of the uh, tribes in South Africa, is, is not good. So her experience of black males, Zulu male, is, is not a positive experience. So her being in a different body, although we share the same skin color, matters and matters a lot. What I'm trying to say is that the, the, I, my life is enriched by the difference around me and hearing her views and how she experiences the world, as much as it's enriched by being able to get to a point as we're doing now and in other times when you and I can have conversations and I can hear your views that are different to mine. But the biggest thing that I think is the issue is this assumption of value that you you have nothing beneficial to get from somebody who thinks or lives or believes differently than you. And that I think is probably the key problem. And that's why I contrast this with this, this irony of thousands of rents and times and leaves spent to go and put yourself in that space to experience something that's different and enjoy the culture that's different and the language that's different and the people that's different. Um, and people who eat dinner at nine o'clock at night, goodness knows why, <laughs> instead of, you know healthy hours of the day, but that is that is of value, and we spend time and money and effort on to do that, but we have that every day, we, that can be opportunities to enrich ourselves experientially in this country that we're in, and I find that very odd, this imbalance um, of this, but I think at its core is that there's an assumption that you cannot get value from other people who don't look like you because we come back into the country or in our everyday spaces, we sit with the same people at lunchtime, we engage with the same people that look like us, we speak the same language, we eat the same food. I don't get that. Mm. Um, And for the average Black South African, that is the normality because we have to go into those spaces, whether it's at work or someone working in your home or whatever the case is there's already that integration and having to understand even by virtue of the fact that we're speaking English or that I, I can speak Afrikaans yeah, Absolutely. but you know there's just a lot I don't want to get too, <laughs> too much down the line but so, opportunities are yeah. everywhere they are everywhere every day but it's this thing of value that I think is assumed. Am I
0: understanding you correctly and I don't want to put words into your mouth, but you know, if 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 at an individual level, people are being intentional about doing that work and unpacking the space that they hold in the world, um, and maybe this is idealistic, but that would surely then have an impact on um, on the way
1: things happen systemically. You know, when I think about systems, for me, I'm. I'm I want to remind, or, or at least in the work that I do, I always start with a, a say to people that, if we're going to change the system, we need to change the people. Mm-hmm. It's the people who create the rules that keep the system going. The, the big part of this always rests on the individual. Um, yes, the uh, the team also, of course, and the it, it, decisions are made in most cases through. Uh, groups of people but at the core of it it's individuals sitting in boardrooms wherever it might be making these decisions and for the individual who who understands that they are losing out and I think this is a point I'm trying to make is that the first must be understanding of that you are losing out if you want to live sort of in an isolated world I mean I can't I can't help you of course and I wouldn't want to try it because that thing is so deeply entrenched that it's not for me to to do that. But I think if people could reframe their way of seeing the world and understand that actually you are the one who's losing out. And I think in, in South Africa, anyway, in the world we live in, yeah, maybe to pay, say it in the positive is there's a lot more opportunity to be freer, less fearful, to be more connected, to be um, more in like to enjoy this country more.
0: I'm I'm going to end it there but I'm also going to say is I think and I'm sure the listeners will agree and I think the listeners will agree you and I need to have more conversations maybe in more detail on on some of these specific things but I want to wrap it up there because something that you said there really resonates with me you said that we we lose out on so much when we when we don't engage in a relationship like you and I have and that's been I'm bringing it back full circle yeah. to to the when we first spoke about our friendship and I think that is true I would be so much poorer not just in terms of relationship but I would be so much poorer in terms of what I've learned if you and I hadn't managed to start a friendship and spend time with each other and challenge each other about things so I'm going to end this conversation here But I think there's so much more to unpack. And so, first of all, I want to thank you for being on. (laughs) This has just been another one of those wonderful conversations. I think what I do want to say in closing is, is I want to say to people, like this conversation, we had some questions that we shared or that I shared with you. But actually, I wanted this just to be people sitting in on a conversation we would have over a cup of coffee anyway. And it feels to me very much like it has exactly been that. And so... I'm just grateful for you for your voice and uh, I know people are going to learn and grow from what you said so thank you for being on Thank you thank you so much and thanks for inviting me. I hope in some way that this incomplete interaction between friends is encouraged and even challenged you. I'd say it's incomplete because I want to acknowledge that our conversation was nuanced and didn't cover the way other marginalized groups are impacted by supremacy. In future conversations, I hope to engage with other guests to unpack these important issues further. Coming up in two weeks or so is an episode about an issue that I believe is a sacred cow for many who grew up in conservative contexts, possibly religious and, in my case, evangelical spaces. My Canadian friend Ashley, who co-facilitates an online class with me on responsible sexual citizenship, will be speaking with me about sex ed we'll be looking at why comprehensive sex ed and responsible sexual citizenship education are so important, and also why we need to challenge some of the more conservative narratives that exist about teaching kids about things like sex, consent, sexuality, gender, and more. So look out for that one, especially if you're a teacher or a parent of kids who are still reliant on you for their information. Until that episode, though, be cool and stay safe.